If you haven't already, would you please open your Bible to John chapter 18? If you're using one of the Bibles that we have here for you, you find those under the seat in front of you, page 588. You'll find John 18 on page 588. I'm looking forward to what we're starting today in this book because John is beginning his account, the author of this book, in chapter 18, he's beginning his account of the betrayal and the arrest and the trials and the death of Jesus. And John has a very unique perspective on all of that. So if you look at the beginning of your New Testament, right in the Bibles you have in your hands, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the very beginning of that New Testament are four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling us their account of the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from their perspective. So they're each telling us the same story, but they're each telling it from their own perspective. And so you have different events that maybe one mentions that the other doesn't mention. They're each unique. But in those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, and John is very unique. So you may have even heard people refer to the synoptic gospels. And when they say the synoptic gospels, they mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are very similar Gospel accounts. Gospel meaning good news. Accounts of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. And John is very unique. What he chooses to include, what he chooses not to include, he sets himself apart from the other authors. So it's one of the reasons that we decided to study John and to really look at the life and the death of Jesus from his perspective. So it's no surprise as we get into the end of his book, as all of them end with the death of Jesus, that he's going to have uh, some very interesting things for us to study, beginning even here in chapter 18. So in the upcoming chapters, uh, John is going to mention several events that the Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not include, and he is also going to skip over some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about. John also is going to talk quite a bit about the Romans and specifically Pilate and the others, not as much. Also, and I find most curious, John, especially in this garden scene at the end of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus heavily on the the sorrow that Jesus was experiencing and the agony that Jesus was experiencing, knowing what was coming. And the picture that John paints is while Jesus is sorrowful, while he's certainly in agony, he is also resolved and he's in total control of everything that's happening. And John makes a point of that. So we'll see that even today in these first 11 verses. But Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words that we have to read. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit we have to help us understand these words. And God, we have many different people here today. And I'm sure with many different burdens and many different struggles But we all have this in common, God, and that is that we need to know you. And we need your help. And we need you to save us and rescue us from ourselves. And we all have that in common today. So would you help each of us to face that today and to hear the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
And we pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, so the first three verses of John 18 set the scene. So let's read these three verses. Here is the scene. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. That sets the scene. Judas knows where Jesus is likely to be on this night. And it's sad, isn't it? How does he know that? Well, he knows where Jesus is likely to be because he and Jesus are close friends. And they've spent the last three years living with one another and traveling with one another and ministering with one another. He knows the routines of Jesus. He knows where he goes in times of trouble. He knows where he goes to pray and be alone with God the Father. He knows that Jesus knows what he's up to. He knows that Jesus is filled with sorrow. He's heard Jesus say that. And so he knows where Jesus will be. And so he comes to Jesus, and he comes with soldiers. And so you have Jesus in the garden. You can imagine it. You have Jesus in the dark in this garden. It's probably a walled garden. And Jesus is with 11 of his 12 disciples. And then in walks the 12th disciple, who is followed by at least 200 soldiers. And what do they have? Lanterns and torches and weapons. They're after someone. They're after someone that they see as a, an insurrectionist. They're after someone that they see as a, as a threat to their way of life and it's night and he may run and they'll need to find him and so they have lanterns and they have torches and he may defend himself when they try to take him prisoner and those who are with him may try to defend him and so they come into this quiet garden armed with weapons so that's the scene look at verse 4 Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus makes the first move. I think John, who's, who's writing this gospel account after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have written their gospel accounts, I think John has probably read at least one of those synoptic Gospels. I think that's how he decides what to include and what not to include. And he's read and understood that Jesus has been portrayed as he was in this garden the night before he was crucified as being weak at times in his emotions and filled with sorrow and agonizing. You remember him? in the garden, on his knees, praying to God and saying to God, if there's any other way to save our people. But then he's resolved. His disciples were off sleeping. He's just all alone, all alone. And then when Judas walks in, he 
betrays Jesus. Do you remember how he betrays him? How he signifies to those who are going to capture him? Who's the right guy? He goes up and he greets him with a kiss on the cheek. And John doesn't, John doesn't mention any of that. Instead, again, I think what he's doing with those gospel accounts in hand is I, I want to emphasize still that Jesus was in complete control of everything that was happening. And so you see that here as he reminds us and shows us, hey, Jesus made the first move here. When they came looking for him in the garden, he did not hide But he came out and met them and said, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. This is a side note that will be of interest to some of you, and to some of you it won't be. But as I read this this week, this, this garden scene reminded me of another garden scene in the Bible. It reminded me of that, that very first garden scene in the beginning of Genesis. It's interesting, isn't it? It begins in a garden It ends in a garden. And remember what happened in that first garden. In that first garden, the first man, Adam, had sinned. He had dishonored, disobeyed, disregarded God. And God came looking for Adam. And do you remember what Adam did? What did he do? He hid from God. So now here we have this garden scene, and here is Jesus in this garden, who Romans 5 refers to as the second Adam. And here's Jesus in this garden. He has not disobeyed God. He's lived a perfect life, and the soldiers come looking for him, and he doesn't hide. He's resolved. He's confident, and he faces them. He's resolved not to have his life taken as much as to give his life up. And now we remember, and we're going to see in weeks to come, to give his life up, why? To give his life up for Adam. And for me. And for you. He's resolved. Verse 4. Let me read it again and finish it. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. That may not sound like a big deal to you, what Jesus says there. Just three little words. I am he. But it is. You'll see that those words are a big deal in just a minute when we see how the soldiers respond when he says those words. But those words, I am he, actually, originally, those are just two words, just I am. He is added when it's translated into English, so it makes a little more sense to us. But he's identifying himself. Yeah, I'm the one that you're looking for. He says, I am. But here's the thing, and here's why that's significant. Some of you know this. One of the things that John has been doing throughout his book is he has been bringing to light these I am statements that Jesus makes. There's seven or eight of them, depending on how you look at it. And Jesus is saying that all throughout the book. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 8, he just said, before Abraham was, I am. So he's talking like that all the time. I am, I am, I am. And he's, he's saying, I am not like any of you. I am, what is he saying? I am God. I'm God. What is he saying When the soldiers come to him now, he's not just, you see that? He's not just answering their question. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, I am who I have always said that I am. I'm the one that you're looking for. I am God. Verses 5 through 7 now tell us more of what's going on. And what happens when Jesus says, I am he? Judas, 
who betrayed him was standing with them. So if we're reading carefully, John makes this picture even more clear now. So here they are to arrest Jesus, and Judas is standing with them. And you remember where Judas was just hours before this? Where was he standing? On the other side of the line, wasn't he? He wasn't actually standing. He was sitting. He was reclining with Jesus at a table at that last meal together. Jesus poured out his heart with his close friends. Judas was there just hours before. And now here he is standing with them, with those who had come to arrest him. In fact, leading them. I don't know about you, but it it, it has always made me a little bit uneasy that Judas could live with and minister with Jesus for three years and and see how how powerful Jesus was and and hear how how helpful his words were and see how much he loved people and, and how much compassion he had and for, for, for Judas to see all of that for three years and to hear the teaching and to witness the miracles and to not have anything negative at the end of the day ever to say about Jesus, it's always made me uneasy that he turns. And it makes me uneasy for, for me. And it, it makes me, I think this is good, I think there's an example there, on guard and careful I don't want to have a life that just serves Jesus for a while and then it turns out in the end just to be fake and just to be something outward and to not really have an inward devotion to Jesus. And and then I have examples that come to mind of pastors too who were pastors for years and years and years and then denied the faith. People I looked up to, people I admired, people I shared college dormitories with, who've walked away. That's sobering. So here's Judas, one of the twelve. John points it out, standing with them. Here's something else that was going on when when Jesus said, I am he. Look at this, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, what happened? They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. One of those movies out there portrays this really well. I don't remember which one it was, but it's that scene where Jesus says, I am he, and, and everybody loses their footing that's standing around him. It would have been great to see that. What did, what did, that, what did that look like? And what's, what's going on here? Why does all of a sudden, every, he just said, I am he, he just answered their question, and everybody around him falls down. What's, what is going on? One commentator actually had the audacity to say that they all just tripped. And it was just kind of weird timing. But one fell, and then like dominoes, the rest of them just fell. Like it's a comedy scene. That's really, that's what you have to do if, if there's nothing miraculous happening. You've got to make up something like that. What, what is it that's going on? Well, actually, actually, what just happened there in in verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, and it says they all drew back and they fell to the ground, that's actually a pretty common thing in the Bible. That's a pretty common thing in the Bible. I think what happens is, the best way I can put it is Jesus lets a little bit of his glory out. And everybody just falls over.
It's all over the place in the Bible. Remember Ezekiel in chapter 1? God gives him a vision of glory and he falls to the ground. Isaiah in chapter 6, God gives him a vision of his glory and he falls to the ground. Remember what he says? Woe is me. He just says, I- I'm undone. In other, he, he was saying, I'm, I'm coming apart at the seams. Like, I, I feel like I can't, I can't handle this. I can't contain this. I'm, I'm actually coming apart. Remember Paul in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus comes to him and he's blinded by the light? And what happens? He falls to the ground. Let me read you from the book of Daniel, chapter 10, verse 7. Here's what happened to Daniel. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So here's Daniel. I think he's next to a river, and and God gives him this vision of his glory, the presence of God. No one else even sees it, but they start falling down. And what happens to Daniel? But a, So I was left alone and saw this great vision. And listen how he describes it. And no strength was left in me. It's very interesting. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. It's giving us insight into what, what happens to a human body when it sees or faces the presence and glory of God, and it just goes to jelly. The way uh, John will describe it in his, the beginning of his book, Revelation, where he receives this vision from God and his glory And in chapter 1, verse 17, where he sees the Lord Jesus, it said, When I saw him, do you remember what he said? I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. You put all those verses together, and you at least get this, that getting close to God is traumatic. It induces trauma. And it's happening here in the garden. When Jesus is a sort of culmination, I, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am, I am He. And when He says that, obviously... His glory is being revealed to these soldiers. And what happens? They buckle. No explanation, but they buckle and fall to the ground and sort of stumble back up. Let's pause for a second. I'd like to ask you something at this point. Something for us to think about. One day... You and I will stand before God face to face. Will you be able to stand? What is that day going to be like for you? What will happen on that day? Hebrews 9.27, every man, every woman is destined to die once and then to face judgment. It's going to happen for me. It's going to happen for you. What will happen? What will your case be? What case will you make before God at that point? 
what will be the, the basis for going on into eternal pleasure with him? What will you say? Why should that not be the end of it for you and for me? Now, at that point, friends, I hope that you don't try and disagree with the Bible and make your case that way. I hope you don't say, I'm a good person. And I say that out of love for you. Because that is a case you cannot make. And in order to make that case before God, well, I've done these good things, or I've lived this good life, or I, at least I haven't done that. I mean, we all can say that, right? That's how I comfort myself. That guy's way worse. I'm not the greatest husband, but I'm not that guy. I'm not the greatest father, but at least I'm not that father. I'm not the greatest Christian, but at least I'm not that Christian. I comfort myself sometimes like that. As if that's the case that I'm going to make. That's my ladder that I prop up. But if you're going to say that, just know your plan is to stand before God and disagree with the Bible. That's your plan. That is not a good plan. That is not a good plan to get the Bible out and start taking a black sharpie and crossing out verses in making your case to the author of the Bible. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way. Romans 3.23, for all you and me have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10-12, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. No one seeks after God. That's me. That's your pastor. That's me. That's you. I have no good thing in me. I have no righteousness in me. I have no right to compare myself to anyone horizontally. I'm to compare myself only to God and what He has called me to do as the one who created me and has loved me and has given me every and any good thing. And I've rejected Him. And I've disobeyed Him. And I've dishonored Him. And I've gone my own way. How good do you have to be? Do you know God's answer for that? Perfect. Perfect. There's no sin in heaven, friends. There's no mistakes in heaven. There's no guilt or shame in heaven. Heaven is perfection. And I don't belong there. So we'll stand before God one day, and I wonder if we'll fall before him in worship or fear. I wonder if we'll fall before him filled with worship or filled with regret. I wonder if we'll fall before him in worship or fear. Verse 8. So Jesus answered, he has to answer them again. They've collected themselves. I just wonder what they were thinking. Looking at each other like, what happened? What was that? Like a bolt of lightning or something? Did you feel that? Why are we all on the ground? Awesome. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So listen to what he says. If you seek me, let these men go. Already a substitute. Already. What's he saying here? Hey, if, if I'm the one you're at, take me, okay, and let these men go. By the way, that's what he's going to say all the way to the cross. He's going to say that to God the Father. Take me, let these men and women go. But here he is physically, right, protecting his 11 close friends. He's thinking about them. So he said, if you seek me, let these men 
go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So here's the good shepherd. He's protecting his sheep. Where did he say those words? It's, it's in John in three places. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. John 6.39, John 10.28, and most recently in John 17.12, Jesus said, While I was with them, I kept them, he's talking about his disciples, in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them. That's what he's doing. He's still guarding them. And not one of them has been lost. And do you remember what he said in John 17, 12? Think about this and how it relates to the scene in the garden. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Who's he talking about? Judas. And he's lost. He's on the other side of the line. He's standing with them. So let's wrap this up with verses 10 and 11. It's always been my favorite part of the story. What's the result of all of that we just read? Because there's, there's, some, there's some guys who haven't been mentioned yet, the disciples. What are they thinking? What are, what are they doing? Are they running? Are are they, are they just standing there? Are they, are they mumbling to one another? Well, one of them's got a knife. And he's not the guy you want to have a knife. It's Peter. And Peter's nuts. He's just a, an emotional guy. Gets caught up in things. Ready, fire, aim. Like, that's not, it's backwards. It's like words come out and they're just out there. And there's, you, some of you are like this. You know, you, you relate to Peter. The words are just out there. You, you hear them the same. Most of us hear them here and then we say them. And some of you hear them when they're already out there and you see people's reactions and then you think about what you said. So that's Peter. You have to be good friends with Peter. That's what he does. And he's already committed to Jesus. Like, I'll do and no one's going to hurt you. No one's going to harm you. I'm going to protect you. I won't let anything happen to you. I'm going to fight to the end. And, and Jesus had to humble him. And we'll hear more about that in weeks to come. Jesus had to humble him and said, no, you're, not as, you're not as protective of me as you think you are. But now here he is, right? And he's still resolved. He doesn't believe what Jesus has said about him. He's probably not humbled yet. No, I don't care. I'm fighting to the death for you. So he's listening to all this. He's watching this go down. And you've got to give him credit because, again, there's probably 200 soldiers that are there. And he's got a knife. It's probably more like the size of a dagger. It says sword, but what it probably was was something smaller like that. Not what you might think of when you think of a sword. This wasn't obvious. He had this hidden, right? It was concealed. But he's carrying that. And as this conversation is going, right, Peter's doing this. He's packing, and now he's reaching. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. I love that. I don't know if I'm supposed to love that, but I love that. The servant's name was Malchus, in case you were wondering. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Peter and Jesus, let's look at Peter, let's look at Jesus. He cut off the man's ear. In one of the other gospel accounts, do you remember what Jesus did then? He put it back on. I mean, this is ridiculous what's happening here. He just grabbed the guy's bloody ear and put it, just put it back on. Just put it back on. But Peter, he had to put it back on because Peter cut it off. Now think about this. It was about this long, right? Peter is either 
Think about it. He's either an amazing shot or he missed. (laughs) Now, I'm inclined to think he missed. He's probably not going for the ear. (laughs) You don't do that. Golf show this guy. (laughs) Taking his ear. And that'd be an amazing shot. I mean, the guy's obviously moving. I mean, I'm sure he's probably trying to dodge that. So I don't think he's an amazing, skilled shot, and he does this sort of surgical maneuver and removes Malchus's ear. What's he, what's he going for? What's, what's between the ears? He's trying to end this guy. I mean, he's full of rage defending... Defending his Lord. He doesn't see the 199 guys behind him. He just goes for it. Defending his Lord. So listen to the reaction. Listen to the response of Jesus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is he talking about? What's the, what cup? There's no cup. It's symbolic, right? It has to be. So we, we start reading the Bible. We start figuring this out. I'm going to go look for the cup. Going to go look for God's cup in the Bible. Now, if you do that, what are you going to find? You're going to find the cup is a, a judgment day thing. The cup is what God is going to make tyrants and wicked people drink on judgment day. The cup is suffering, the cup is judgment. The cup is God's justice. What is the cup full of? The cup is full of God's wrath. And it is poured out on the wicked. Let me read you a sampling of the verses. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or elsewhere in Isaiah, it's called the bowl of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. And last in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, those who are serving and devoting themselves to Satan, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Chapter 16, verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
So in the Bible, the cup is God's just wrath poured out on wickedness. And aren't we thankful for that? Aren't we thankful that God restrains evil? Aren't we thankful? Isn't it comforting to know that God will punish evil? Think of evil that's been committed against you. Think of evil that's being committed against others. And isn't it good to know that God is just, that he doesn't wink at that, that he doesn't sweep it under the carpet, that he doesn't ignore it, but that he's moved by it, that he's moved into action by it, and he will make sure that evil and wickedness is punished. He'll make sure that, isn't it comforting to know that evil will one day be brought to a halt and it will end forever? We can't imagine what life would be like if there was not a right and just God. But that also puts you and me in a very difficult position if I believe what God says about me. And that is that I too am a sinner. that I too have fallen short, that I too am wicked and not deserving any good thing from God, but deserving, like a spiritual criminal, justice and punishment. I mean, God has never done one bad thing to me. He has done nothing but good for me. He has created me he has sustained me. He has loved me. He has never committed any wrong against anyone. And so how great is it when we sin against him? You think a little baby is innocent? Nothing compared to God. So innocent of evil. And yet we ignore him. We disregard him. We say, no, thank you. I'll go my own way. Friends, we don't get just how offensive that is and what a crime that is against a good God. So now, I'm in a tough spot if I come to accept that because I still want justice for that guy, but I want mercy for me. And so I applaud the justice of God. Yes, he needs to get what's coming to him. Justice, justice, justice. The scales. Balance the scales. No one gets away with anything. Crime is punished. Oh, wait a minute. I'm a sinner? Oh, God, mercy. Show me mercy. That's how it works, isn't it? When that day comes again, how will I stand? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. We can agree or disagree whether or not that is a just punishment for sin. But God says it is. The wages of my sin is death. Not to sin against God my whole life and then go live with Him for eternity. But it's to get what I always wanted. A life without God. Forever. So how will I stand? Are you going to stop sinning today? Are you done with it? I'm betting most of you don't get out of this room today without sinning. I might not finish this sermon. 
without some sinful thought right here. So that's not, it's not going to fly. So what is the answer, friends? Is there some good news or is this just hopeless? All right, did you hear the good news in what Jesus said to Peter? Hey, hey Peter, put your sword in its sheath. In other words, don't try to fix this yourself. That's not going to work. Rather, let me do what I came to do. What did you come to do, Jesus? Shout, looking in Peter's eyes, Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Let's remember the cup. Peter, shall I not have God the Father's wrath poured out on me tomorrow? Peter, shall I not drink the cup of God's wrath, his fury, all the way down to the dregs? Shall I not experience the worst suffering? Peter, don't stand in my way. Why does Jesus need to suffer God the Father's wrath? 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died. We'll see that and read about that happening soon. Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for all the unrighteous to bring us to God. Why is he going to drink that cup of God's wrath for those whom the Father has given him? For his children, for you, for me. So that God's wrath won't need to be poured out on you and me. Do you see how that works? So your sin, friends, it gets dealt with. Your sin gets paid for. And either you're going to pay for them or Jesus paid for yours. Those are the only two options. It's not going to just disappear. It's not going to just go away. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Now that is, friends, that's the gospel. That is the good news. The good news is that Jesus came, he lived, he suffered, he died in the place of sinners like you and me so that we could be reconciled to God. And he shows us what a great and just and merciful God God is because justice and mercy meet on that cross. So what now? That's the gospel. That's the good news. And every single one of you, will, you'll do one of two things today. And there's no middle ground. You'll either believe that or you'll reject that. And there's no other option. You'll either believe that or you'll reject that. If you've never believed that, then you came here rejecting that. And you, you, you may reject it for a while longer and then believe. You may believe now. But those are your options. You could reject that and say, I'm not buying that. I don't believe that. And you can go your own way. And you can live according to your own philosophies or other religions or whatever it is. And you can live that way. And you will face judgment one day. And condemnation. But there's another way you can live. You can believe this gospel. You can believe this is true. If you're like me, you know it's true. You know this is true about yourself. You know who you are. You know what you deserve and what you don't deserve. You've tried to do this on your own. You failed, you failed, you failed. You're, you're to the end of yourself. 
And so you believe this. You're excited to know this may be true. You believe what Jesus says and you submit to him. Okay, Jesus, I'm yours then. What do you want from me? What do you want from my life? You paid for me. I belong to you. You trust him. You rely on him. You trust that your sins were paid for on the cross and so you can be forgiven and you can have eternal life with God. That's what that looks like. Now here's just a little bit more in closing of good news and that is that you are in a good place this morning. You're in a really good place. You're in a place surrounded by people who are just like you. With the same kinds of problems and issues before God. Facing the same struggles. And you're just in a place where these people are learning together. This is one way every Sunday. Who are learning together how to live for God. How to please Him. How to honor Him. So with thankful hearts, hearts filled with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, knowing that we can stand before God one day and not lose our footing, and stand and worship Him and praise Him, fall down and worship, perhaps, but not in fear. And we continue now to learn more and more of these truths and how we might please God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this gospel. God, we thank you for this good news. And would you help us who are here and who believe to continue to figure out how to, how to, to organize our lives around you and how to make our decisions based on you and how to think based on you and, and your word and how not to rely on our own strength anymore but you and how to not trust in our own works but to trust in your work. God, would you, would you help us to, to, to get you and the gospel at the very center of our lives? We all need work here, God. Would you please help us? For those who are here today, God, and who are hearing this gospel and hearing this good news, I pray, Lord, that you would help them now to believe. And I pray for all of us, God, that, that these truths would become more and more important to us. It would make us more and more thankful and grateful so that we would give you the worship that you deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.